I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode number 14. Today, Vin and I are doing an interview together. This is somebody that, Vin, you know pretty well. You've you've worked with this person. So why don't you give us an introduction to who we're chatting with today? Yeah, on today's interview, we have the Brian Bedrosian of the Teton Raptor Center and also the co-founder and director of the new organization, Sporting Lead Free. Uh, Brian and I know each other from our work on the greater Yellowstone ecosystem uh, him working primarily with raptors and, and my work with loons. And, you know, we've crossed paths uh, in the ecosystem and collaborate with some of the same people. Um, Brian's held in really high regard uh, by folks in the ecosystem and, and beyond. Um, and he's just done some fantastic work with uh, lead toxicosis uh, in raptors and corvids and that's going to be the focus of our of the interview today. Yeah, and lead poisoning, it's one of those issues that keeps coming up over and over again because it's just such a large problem and lead is one of those materials that's still so prevalent in the environment. So, you know, we've talked about this before in previous episodes and actually Vin and I just yesterday were recording an interview for a future episode that'll be coming out in a few weeks. Um, talking about a species of alpine parrot over in New Zealand, the, the kia. And I had no idea, but actually we learned in that interview that lead poisoning is actually a very big problem for that species as well. So it's one of those huge issues that just keeps coming up over and over again. And in this episode, we're talking a lot about hunting and particularly as it relates to lead poisoning and raptors and the larger picture of wildlife health. And I just wanted to mention that you know, I realize that hunting is one of those topics that can be very polarizing to talk about. And I'm sure with all of our listeners, you all probably fall all across the spectrum. I'm sure many of you out there are probably avid hunters and outdoorsmen and women, but I'm sure many of you are also, you know, don't hunt or you might even be opposed to hunting. So I would just ask that as we go into this episode, no matter where you personally fall on the spectrum, Um, I would just ask that you listen to this episode with an open mind because we don't want this to just devolve into a debate about pro versus anti-hunting. That really kind of misses the point about what we're talking about here. Yeah, this uh, episode, this podcast is about wildlife health and hunting is a part of the equation of wildlife health. And as you all know, we're a podcast with a purpose. So if you enjoy this episode, if it really resonates with you, Go check out the links in the show notes and you can learn more about Brian's new initiative, Sporting Lead Free. You can also learn more about the work of Teton Raptor Center. They do some phenomenal work with um, research and rehabilitation of all different species of raptors out in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. They're based out in Wyoming. So yeah, check out those links and learn how you can uh, support those, those great organizations. Yeah, and there's uh, some really great swag out there for sporting lead free. Brian mentions it a bit in the episode, but you can uh, go and and donate to their cause or even just sign up for their uh, contact list and get a free sporting lead free koozie. Mm. 
everybody loves koozies, especially me. I have way too many. He does. That's a fact. So with that, let's um, kick it over to the interview. So here's Brian Bedrosian of Teton Raptor Center and Sporting Lead Free. So I'm Brian Bedrosian. I am the conservation director for a nonprofit in Jackson Hole, Wyoming called Teton Raptor Center. I'm an ornithologist, raptor ecologist, um, but also here I have a, a, another role where I'm a co-founder and director of an organization uh, called Sporting Lead Free that I think will be relevant to our topic today, uh, talking about lead ingestion in wildlife. Um, my primary role as a biologist and as a researcher here at Teton Raptor Center is to work on a variety of different conservation projects um, on all different raptor species, but also including um, some of their primary prey like sage grouse and other uh, species that tie in the ecology of our hawks, owls, uh, and eagles. And so I'm fortunate enough to have started my career here 20 years ago and continue it in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, uh, studying everything from the tiny migratory flammulated owls to golden eagles and everything in between. And so it's been a huge privilege and I'm, I'm happy to be here talking with you two today um, about some of our projects. Yeah, definitely. And like we were talking about before we started our recording, um, you're a name that I have heard a lot, especially working out in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, but just in the wildlife field in general. So thank you so much for your time today and talking with us. I'm super excited to, to get you on and, and dive into everything related to lead ingestion and wildlife and raptors. And um, I mean, maybe we can dive into this later, but I even saw you had a couple of papers working with large carnivores too, which I had no idea that you were even you know, had any involvement with that whole realm. Oh, make make no mistake about it. I am a raptor ecologist. I happen to be, work with the right people working on large carnivores as, as it relates to lead ingestion as well. Um, uh, you know, as, as you know, being in the greater Yellowstone, it's an amazing place with an amazing amount of people and research and effort going into conserving this area. So. Uh, yeah, I'm not a carnivore biologist. I don't pretend to be. Uh, I just am fortunate enough to work with a few amazing folks. Yeah, it's such a complex and complicated wildlife landscape. And it's always amazing to see how well you guys take sort of an ecosystem approach. And yeah, it's just, you know, reading up on some of the stuff where you're working with songbirds, you're working with sage grass, working with gophers, and trying to tie you know, that full sort of food web into, into your research to better understand all these issues with raptors and yeah, to break out into mammal work is uh, from birds. Yeah, it's always impressive. It's uh, as you mentioned, a, co a complicated system and we got to understand all of it, uh, you know, both from what they eat and, you know, as, as a predator, these raptors and what is in the food they're eating, which I think uh, is relevant to lead ingestion as well as some other uh, human related issues that we all can take a, a uh, a better approach on uh, to conserve our wildlife health. Yeah, and you know, the GYE being that mixed-use landscape, heavily protected, but also, you know, really, really uh, utilized, you know, resources on the landscape. Hunting is a big part of, of the GYE, the whole region, uh, both for, you know, local folks um, and people visiting the region, 
Um, and um, yeah, and so there, there is, you know, lead has been an, a longstanding issue with wildlife and it's something that, that you folks are working to, to understand um, and also mitigate, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my initial introduction to lead in wildlife um, came through birds. Uh, I was years ago working on my master's project on ravens. And at the time I had heard about this kind of emerging issue with California condors. And, you know, long story short, I think it's safe to say California condors cannot and will not survive in the wild on their own until the lead that's in their food is removed. And as scavengers, these birds are feeding on everything from you know, dead uh, roadkill to shot animals and gut piles left behind by hunters. And at the time I was catching a lot of ravens uh, for mark recapture studies. And I was like, hey, I, I've got an opportunity here to see if this also exists in some of the other scavengers that exist on the landscape, namely ravens and later eagles. Um, and Wyoming is, you know, Wyoming, and hunting, you know, are synonymous. You know, it is part of our heritage. It's part of our culture. You know, a lot of our listeners are pretty well aware of, of lead issues, but but some of them are not. And maybe you can just sort of walk us through sort of what the, the these pathways are for for lead ingestion for these raptor species that you're and other species that you're working with. Yeah, you bet. So you know, lead ingestion. When people think about wildlife eating lead, almost everybody immediately goes to ducks and waterfowl eating lead and lead shot. And while that pathway still exists, you know, those ducks are dabbling ducks and they reach down and they pick up little pellets and, um, you know, in physically ingest the lead pellets that are shot and left from shotgun pellets. Um, that's one avenue. So some birds that's still a major issue for like um, morning doves in some of these high morning dove concentration areas you know, upwards of, uh, you know, I can't remember exactly what it is, but a shocking percent, you know, 30 or 50% of morning doves have lead pellets in, in their gizzards at, at those areas. When we're talking about raptors though, there's two other ways that the raptors are eating lead. The main way raptors eat lead is by ingesting it through gut piles. So when a hunter goes out and harvests a deer, antelope, elk, whatever large game, they're using a lead-based projectile in their rifle. And when that uh, bullet expands for the knockdown power to ethically kill that animal, it releases up to 50 to 40% of its mass as microscopic little fragments of lead that are then left throughout the gut pile, but not also in, in the meat that the hunters are bringing home. So when the eagles and ravens and condors come down and feed on that gut pile, because it's a great service that they do for us to feed on those gut piles and clean them up across the landscape, they're unknowingly ingesting this lead because it's so small and fine scale dust. Uh, but also because it's so small, it's assimilated much easier and more readily. The other avenue that raptors are in eating lead is through um, wounded and um, wounded or shot animals that are left out in the field. And that can be divided up in a couple of different categories too. So if you're out plinking pock gopher, you know, if you're out there plinking gophers and leave your prairie dogs out in the field, 
you know, those shots are a dinner bell for Virginia's Hawks, Red Tail Hawks, Great Horned Owls, Golden Eagles. They're coming in to get a free meal. However, that's still that small firearm that you're using to kill your pests is also leaving lead residue that those eagles are feeding on. The other avenue is upland game. And so when you're up there shooting pheasant, quail, chucker, you know, wounding loss is somewhere in the range of about 20%. So 20% of the animals that are shot aren't retrieved. And so they either die later or they're wounded. And what's a better animal for an eagle to pick off than a wounded animal? It's much easier. And those are the ones you're going to go after first. And then they physically ingest the lead pellets that are embedded in that pheasant and upland game. So there's many different avenues that these birds are feeding on lead. And the easiest solution to all of them is to simply use lead-free options when you're out there hunting and fishing. Uh, well, yeah, and then there's the whole fishing angle, which I didn't even get into. Angling for, you know, loons and, you know, osprey and all of those. I mean, yeah, that's, uh, you know, some direct uh, ingestion and also indirect ingestion. So, yeah, how, like I could talk for hours and hours on that, on many of these fronts. But, you know, the, the point is, is lead's a cheap available option in our sporting goods stores. And, well, there's a place for them. When you're out there harvesting and the, and the birds are going to be able to feed on what we are, you know, providing, then it, it's an opportunity to, to use something else. Yeah, we don't have to get into the, the loon and lead issue as we'll, uh, we'll spend a lot of time on that. We'll probably have uh, Mark Pokris and others back on to, to talk about loons and lead. Um, yeah, do you, have, do you have a direction you want to take this or you, I've got a couple couple questions that yeah I guess one question that people might be wondering at home is when these birds when these raptors are feeding on gut piles is this typically an acute poisoning like they feed on it become super sick die or is it more of a chronic low-level exposure where they get a little bit but they still kind of do okay and it kind of builds up over time in this sort of sublethal sort of chronic lead poisoning yeah so how are these birds dying is an amazing question that's very important that is ridiculously difficult to know the answer to uh, you know as you probably know um, there is the chronic low level exposure that is vitally important um, but i think there are the direct acute poisoning that that does occur where you know the animal eats enough lead or eats a big enough piece that it puts it over the threshold and it can't digest anymore it gets you know its whole digestive system shuts down it can't fly it and then it dies from one reason or another um, if they're lucky enough they get picked up brought to a rehab go through chelation get another chance at life but most birds aren't that lucky so in the studies we've done, we've done a lot of studies on ravens and bald eagles in particular, um, it runs the gamut. I've tested birds, you know, that would be ridiculously off the charts with lead ingestion, with lead in their blood. Put a transmitter on them, released them, two years later, still going strong. I've also seen the opposite where a bird with, with almost, you know, very low levels of lead in its blood, put a transmitter on it, dies um, from lead complications later on. And 
you know, bald eagles, golden eagles, they can live for 35 years. So here in Jackson, where we're doing our studies, if you think about like those big salmon runs in the Pacific Northwest and those eagles are honing in on those areas of high food concentrations, that same thing's happening here in Wyoming. So we've got, we are sitting on the Eagle Highway. Thousands and thousands of eagles migrate down from Canada and Alaska every year. And every year, Wyoming, Montana, we've got amazing big game seasons. It creates this food bonanza during the fall season when these birds are migrating in. And so they come down and we have data to back this up with, with transmitters. Bald eagles are coming down from Alaska, come down, feed on gut piles during the hunting season. A week after the hunting season, they continue their migration down to Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. That next spring, go up to Canada and repeat year after year. So every year they're coming and feeding on gut piles and every year they're getting those doses of lead and what make, when it's too much for that bird to handle, we don't really know. But if you've got low level lead exposures, it makes you a higher risk for other collisions with vehicles. It makes you have lower reaction time. And if you're an eagle and you need to catch a fish or if you need to catch a jackrabbit, your reaction time is pretty important. And if, you, if that's reduced, then you get hungry. And what do you do if you're an eagle and you're hungry? You feed on roadkill. But at the same time, your reaction time is lower. And so when the big Mack truck comes by, maybe you're a fraction of a second late and get smacked by the truck. So it's a whole gamut. It runs the whole gamut of, you know, outright killing them versus, you know, essentially making them vulnerable to a variety of other types of mortality. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point, too, because I think when a lot of people hear or talk about lead poisoning, we tend to think of the kind of acute poisoning, death, you know, the bird gets super sick and either passes away or, as you mentioned, gets hauled off to rehab, you know, very, very sick, very, very debilitated. Um, but then if on the flip side, looking at all the human data where, of course, they have much, much more information available much finer detailed studies, you know, than we're, than we have with wildlife. But for example, with human children, they've been able to, researchers have documented, you know, very discrete, different cognitive dysfunctions at super, super low levels of lead. So, you know, I think that's a, often overlooked is the whole sublethal part where even if that bird doesn't, you know, keel over and die from lead exposure, um, that doesn't mean that mortality couldn't be related to lead exposure right or that you have carryover effects of that exposure in the in the fall or or winter impacting you know breeding season success and you know ability to hold territories or raise young or um yeah just succumb to to other health issues yeah you know you're you're spot on you know one of the studies we started as a direct result of that question was um, with golden eagles up in northeastern Wyoming. And, you know, if you're out there plinking ground squirrels and prairie dogs, when are you doing that? You're doing that in May, June, July. And when did the eagles have chicks? May, June, July. And, you know, we know the data show that, you know, when you start shooting, birds and mammals and bears take notice because they know it's a free meal. And so we started a study to look at the incidence of lead ingestion um, in the nestling eagles from the parents bringing in shot prairie dogs. And we actually 
went up, climbed up into the trees, got the blood samples from the eaglets, um, and then with collaborators, um, Myra Finkelstein and others, um, isolated the isotopic ratio of the lead that was in the blood of the eaglets. And then we got, we collected a bunch of these shot prairie dogs in the field, dissected them, pulled out the little lead fragments, and then matched that um, to the lead isotopes from, in the, from the birds to the prairie dogs, showing that kind of direct correlation. Wow, that's that's such a cool study. So, so the lead isotope is sort of like a little marker. So you were able to use that little isotope, or AKA like a little, listeners can think of it as like a little marker that was able to directly mark that the lead that you were finding in the blood of the chicks was the same as the lead that was coming from those prairie dogs that had been shot. Exactly. So the what the isotope showing us is it's what where kind of the lead came from um, and the isotope ratio of lead in paint versus gasoline versus ammunition versus a battery are all different and so some people are like ah you know they were just picking off lead paint from this old house because they were bored and what this study is showing us is that that you know many different the same thing many different studies are showing us but just with some empirical evidence that yes these birds are ingesting lead from ammunition. Now, do we know what it does to those eaglets? No idea. We can't track those birds for 30 years over a continental scale, but I mean, as much as I'd love to, um, that's, that's the challenge. We know it impacts birds. And the question is, you know, if, if you're a hunter, you want to walk away from your gut pile saying, hey, there's enough lead in there to kill 10 eagles. Or do you want to walk away from your gut pile saying, hey, I just fed 10 eagles and helped them survive through the winter. What are, what are, so when you're collecting these blood samples and, and looking at uh, lead uh, values, um, are you all looking at, at other blood parameters or other um, indicators of, of the health of these individual animals? No. So when we're, when we're sampling the birds, um, you know, as you probably are aware and know, you know, these birds, don't like to be captured. Um, they don't like to be handled. And so trying to assess their kind of health status and mental status is beyond my capabilities as a field biologist. You know, the way we catch them is we put out gut piles and roadkill. And then I made a net launcher that shoots a 20 foot by 20 foot net remotely from about a mile away. So we're, you know, we're shooting a net over these birds as they're feeding unknowingly. Um, so the short answer is no, we're not really measuring anything other than the, the lead that's, that's in them at the time, right? So when we're measuring blood lead levels, that measures what the birds have eaten in the past two weeks. So it doesn't give us any indication on lifetime accumulation or what the lead level is a week before that or a week after that, um, because um, you know, somewhat, you're on that scale somewhere if it ate lead, you're either going up or you're going down and we don't know where it is. What I can say is, you know, after we showed that two thirds of the eagles in Jackson Hole had lead levels during the hunting season, a third of those were poisoning levels. We handed out free and discounted ammo for hunters for a couple of years. In the first year, 25% of hunters used non-lead ammo. In the next year, about 34% of hunters used non-lead ammo. And it was a one-to-one -one correlation with the number of hunters using non-lead ammo to the decrease in the lead levels of the birds that we measured those years. Wow. That's the science you want to see. 
that's the, yeah i saw that and was like oh my gosh we could not make up this data any better if we wanted to people are probably going to think it's fake because it looks so good um, when you think about it, it it makes perfect sense when you're when you examine the pathways and the mechanisms of her lead exposure and that that makes that's what you would expect to see yeah so you know I, I was doing most of these studies, gosh, you know, everywhere from, you know, 15 years ago to a few years, you know, back and, and, you know, I did what we do as scientists, right? You do a study, you find something out, you figure out what the answer is, you publish it and you're like, all right, great. I solved the problem. So it turns out the world doesn't read scientific journals. Um, and, you know, while we got some traction, it just wasn't enough. And so that's why it took the more recent step of starting an organization to help promote you know the voluntary use of non-lead um, for fishing and, and hunting um, so i'm pretty proud of you know being able to take the science to that next level um, and as part of that we're also um, looking at the lead not only from the wildlife side and i know this is the wildlife health um, connection but there's also a human health connection because that lead that the birds are feeding, we're also bringing that home to our families if we're hunting with lead-based bullets. And just in the past two years, I've scanned about 1,500 packages of game meat um, with our digital x-ray and about 10 to 15% of the ground meat has lead fragments in it. Um, so one more reason, you know, why, why we should be using lead-free options. It's not only good for wildlife, but it's good for, for us. We want lead out of the environment. We want lead out of our families, our kids. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, so that seems like a very high percentage, up to, you said 10 to 15% of the ground meat. So that's meat that's packaged, ready to go, right onto the dinner table, essentially. Yep. Yeah, and the fragments, you know, to be fair, the fragments are small. It's absolutely nothing you would see or feel like I've dissected these packages. You know, you take the x-ray, you know where it is, you cut it open, you start sifting through the meat and you're like, I have no idea where it is. And then you have to x-ray it five more times and you get down to it. Um, and is it enough to, you know, harm an adult, non-childbearing human? No, but, you know, as you mentioned, these, we know the human health data show low level, there's no safe amount. And, and even some very small amounts can affect the cognition of, of children and, and you know childbearing women and young children should absolutely be avoiding it when possible. Yeah, that's a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. And Sorry, I didn't mean to take a dark turn. <laughs> no, I mean that's sometimes you gotta sometimes get dark you have to. to yeah. yeah, and I mean that's why that's part of the reason why we called it this podcast, the wildlife connections is part, one of the things we try to really highlight is not just wildlife health, but how wildlife health is connected to human health, environmental health, and how it's, you know, we're all kind of part of the same system. So yeah, one health. Yeah, that's really important that you that you brought up um, all of these things, for sure, are wildlife health issues, but yeah, it, it affects us as well. Yeah. And if you know, I think in terms of, you know, the scope of conservation, if you can get folks to care about, you know, issues that are environmental issues that are affecting them, then they can, you know, better link it to uh, the same issue and impacting wildlife. And I think that's, that's sort of a, an important one that I think is happening. We see it with um, 
different pollutants, you know, some of the synthetic chemicals and pesticides and herbicides, and people start to sort of wake up to these aspects that uh, may be impacting them and their health and their family and their kids' health, and then realizing like, okay, yeah, all these things are just out in the environment and the animals can't avoid it or don't know that it's there and they're just getting, you know, even worse exposure to some of these uh, issues. Yeah, I think it's really important too, you know, as people realize that, you know, wildlife and humans are ingesting lead from hunting sources, you know, it becomes pretty easy for folks that aren't hunters and don't understand hunting to kind of demonize the, the practice and polarize the issue unnecessarily. Um, and so, you know, anytime I talk about this, I want to point out that, you know, it, this should never be an anti-hunting thing. Like, I think, you know, the North American model of wildlife conservation is great. Like, I subscribe to it. I think it's awesome. I, I think hunting as a conservation tool is very important. Um, and, you know, hunters provide a huge service to eagles and other raptors in the fall and winter by providing food for them in the form of gut pots. The trick is just, you know, making that personal choice to be able to switch over to non-light options once you realize it's an issue. Because, you know, once you know it, you can't unknow it, right? And then you're like, oh my gosh, I don't believe, I can't believe everybody doesn't know this. But at some point we all didn't know about it. And there's a lot, most people still don't. And so, you know, providing that information is, 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 is important for, for wildlife in our ecosystems, but also, you know, just in a very positive light discussions about it. Yeah, and, and that, that's the, uh, the aim of, of Sporting Lead Free, your, your new endeavor with, with some other collaborators of yours. And um, I've been following, following you on social media. Um, the content that you're delivering is great, really good messaging, getting the facts out there, out there to folks. Yeah, tell, tell us sort of how, how's, you know, Sporting Lead Free came together and sort of where you, you all see it going. Yeah, I, you know, this is, this is something I'm very uh, proud of. You know, it's, it's, it's rare that in the wildlife field and as a researcher, we can take the next step and affect change, you know, based on the data we've collected. And, and Sporting Lead Free helps, helps us do that. And, you know, it literally just this morning, I was out elk hunting. And, um, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I, I'm hoping to avoid all the grizzly bears, you know, um, but thinking to myself, you know, there's all of this wildlife out there that are feeding on these gut piles. Um, and I've had just dozens and, you know, hundreds of conversations with hunters and, you know, they hear lead, they hear ammo, they hear, we want to change their ammo. And it automatically becomes a polarized second amendment issue. Um, and part of that, to be fair, is in response to the legislation that was introduced in California a few years ago, um, which is interesting because um, it doesn't necessarily mean more compliance when you regulate something as opposed to educate the, the contingency that you're trying to change. Um, you know, Lead is, is the biggest issue for California condors, critically endangered species, um, you know, doesn't exist outside of huge human intervention, captive breeding programs, releases. Um, and that's why the legislation was enacted in California for California condors. Arizona, however, also has a population of California condors where they took a different approach and they're trying to educate hunters and providing incentives 
and the compliance rates are great. Over 90, right around 90% of hunters are using non-lead ammo because of direct and positive outreach. And so that's what we're trying to emulate and give hunters a chance to be part of a community of other conservation-minded hunters that say, hey, we recognize this is an issue. We're gonna do what hunters have done for a hundred years and try and lead with conservation and help steward the land that we love so much and we wanna be out in. And that's what we're trying to do with Sporting Life Free is create that community, create that awareness, and then also increase access. Because right now, if you don't know what non-lead ammo is, you don't know where to find it, it's ridiculously difficult. And granted, no one can find ammo anywhere right now because we've been in ammo shortage. But that aside, like, you know, we need better labeling, we need better communication from our salespeople. And so we're trying to address all of these things um, to affect positive social change. Yeah, I love it. That, that approach to everything. Yeah, bravo. Never easy to do that, but is where we see really great traction in conservation. So yeah, bravo on that. Thanks. Yeah, when you when you go out and do a shooting demo with somebody and you shoot some ballistics gels and you see all of those tiny little lead fragments, you're like, oh, that's what we're talking about. That's amazing. Like um, everybody understands weight retention of a bullet, but they don't think about where that lost lead goes. And you see it. You know, we X-ray gut piles, we X-ray animals that are shot, and it's like a dust cloud of lead particles at an 18 inch trajectory to the right, or at 18 inches at a right angle to the trajectory of the bullet. So it's throughout that whole chest cavity, up in the shoulders, in the meat. Um, and you know, every gut pile, we, I drug dozens of gut piles out of the field, you know, just going following, I was like following the hunters, waiting for the dinner bell myself, and they'd go shoot and the gut pile would be there, and I'd sled it out, you know like swatting the raptors and ravens off of it <laughs> yeah exactly because they didn't hate me enough for catching them in the first place i'm not taking their food away from them um but yeah we take it in x-ray and it's a hundred and about 165 visible fragments per gut pile that are in there and if you do the math um you know back in the 90s when it was or 80s when it was still kind of okay to poison bald eagles they did some lab experiments to figure out how much lead would actually kill an eagle and if you do the calculations, about three or four of those little fragments that are left in a gut pile, if fully metabolized, is enough to kill an eagle. And if you think about 165 of those fragments in each gut pile that an eagle is going to feed on throughout a three-month period, that's a lot of opportunities um, to get sick. At this point in the interview, we had some technical difficulties with the audio on our side, but we asked Brian how he actually goes about capturing raptors for these various studies. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's some good stories to be had about climbing eagle nests and also capturing eagles in the winter. So uh, maybe I'll briefly describe both because yeah, like you say, yeah, you know, we're just catching eagles and taking blood samples and it's no big deal. Um, yeah, not to mention it took eight years and, you know, thousands of hours of time uh, and at significant life risk to myself and others. An eagle is going to pick the oldest, deadest cottonwood it possibly can and put it way out on the limb. And uh, yeah, it's our job to figure out how the heck to climb up there. And so there's a couple of different ways, but usually we've got this little line launcher that, that shoots 
a little line that we can get up and over a branch, and then you pull up the climbing rope and you use that to help climb up the tree. And you know, for those folks that aren't familiar with cottonwoods, they are um, very deadly. You, the bark is about three inches thick, and we put spikes on our feet so we can kind of spike into, just like you'd climb up a power pole. Um, we use that on, the, on the, the trees, but cottonwoods have this thick bark that just peels off in big sheets, you know, three feet by six feet wide, and especially those old cottonwood trees. And so it's, um, it's really nerve wracking um, to say the least. And, you know, while I've climbed up many after uh, I've got, I've got a six year old and a seven year old now, and, and about seven years ago, I decided to pass that, that task on to some of the younger folks. <laughs> um, but not only that, you get to the top of the nest and the nest is about as, you know, it could be as wide as a car. I'm cl literally climbing myself into the nest with two eagles that want to kill me because they do not want to have anything to do with um, a human. And, you know, a lot of folks think that adults are coming down and whacking you at the back of the head and things like that, but, but they, they, they just circle around. They, they know humans are way too much danger to come in close, but you are still dealing with two almost full-grown eaglets or, or three in the nest that you have to wrangle. Um, so you got to grab them, make sure that their talons aren't, aren't uh, you know, all the sharp bits are uh, covered up and, and held appropriately. And then by yourself, you know, you got to wrap them up. Um, we're drawing a blood sample from uh, the vein in their wing. Um, and then you've got a, a kit where we're putting the, the lead samples in the, in the test tubes. Okay, wow. So just to reiterate, he's taking blood samples from these eaglets while teetering on the top of a dead tree with the parents circling around on top of him. This officially wins the award in my book for most extreme venipuncture. And now I feel super inadequate for ever having struggled to get blood from an animal in the clinic or on the ground. Yeah, so if it's an eagle nest, usually you can get into the eagle nest uh, and use that as your kind of working platform. But for, you know, I was also doing this with other hawks and ravens and those smaller ones, you're just clipping into the tree, hanging from the tree, um, taking the blood sample from the bird while it's up there. Um, or, you know, you could lower it down to folks that are on the ground to take the blood sample too and bring it back. But usually for the eagles, it's just as easy just to, to do it while you're in the tree with them. Oh yeah, just as easy. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> wow. But I, I want to paint the picture for trapping eagles and ravens in the winter too, because I think this is pretty amazing. And I it took me two years to catch my first raven. Ravens are ridiculously smart. I will argue the next smartest creature to humans. They have more advanced tool manufacturing than chimpanzees and their vocal repertoire, hundreds of different vocalizations and regional dialects, culture, learning. Anyways, you could do you do a whole nother podcast just on the intelligence of corvids and ravens. So what we end up doing is you've got to find roadkill because they're eating bait. So it's either, you know, you go out and I've been, you got to pry the frozen roadkill off the bait, uh, off the road. And then uh, out in the greater Yellowstone, we have our whole suite of carnivores, coyotes, wolves, bears, that also are hungry during the fall and winter months. And so, um, we go out and ravens are so smart that you cannot do anything during daylight hours. If they know me as an individual, they knew my car, they knew my truck, like 
if I drove a truck past a pile of ravens, they would all fly away because they knew something, I was coming. And if I was coming, that meant a net launcher might be next to their bait that was about to blow off and catch them in a big net. Um, so I'd have to go out before dawn every morning um, or, or after dusk every evening to cover the bait so the wolves and the coyotes and the bears didn't feed on it, put dryer sheets around to make it smell like humans, but then go out before dawn to un uncover it, set the traps, and repeat for three months all winter when it's negative 15 and you know 20 mile an hour winds um, and hoping that all your nets don't freeze and then you sit out there all day every day waiting for the birds to be on the bait for you to to blow the net uh off and catch them and then you run out like crazy and hope the snow's not too deep or you're falling on your face the whole time I, I, from what i understand they're incredibly observant absolutely yeah you drop a glove when you're walking away you're done a week's worth of work is gone like i would go and you know use my own footsteps you know, and so, and then kind of brush them off as I'm leaving. I even went so far as, you know, after you catch, you know, a couple hundred ravens, they start telling their friends and they were like, okay, there's a sagebrush bush 15 feet away from this carcass. That's about 400 yards from the road. Don't go anywhere near that. So I actually like had to make dummy net launchers. So I would put that out there, let them get used to it for a week or two weeks at a time then switch it out. But then they got so smart that they knew what the dummy one was and what the real one was. So I would switch it out and they'd stop using it. I'd switch it back, they'd come use it. And it was just this huge like Tom and Jerry cat and mouse game, you know, of just like, my wife, you know, she's like, it's Coyote Roadrunner and you are just a coyote and you can't outsmart the Roadrunner. Um, but yeah, they're super observant. Like I said, they knew my truck. so the bait would be set and I'd be driving by and they would all flush before I could set the launcher up. I'd have to change vehicles like every week. Um, so to be one step ahead of the birds, you know, actually this is an interesting piece of the lead puzzle um, that relates to Ravens. And now that I was thinking about how I capture them, um, I was telling this story and a biochemist in um, Sweden, heard me talking about how each species has a different threshold to lead ingestion. So the lead levels we measure, let's just say, um, you know, anything, anything over 60 would put us in the hospital just for, for reference, right? I have, I think only of two of the, you know, 1200 ravens I've tested have been over 45. Eagles, on the other hand, we've tested as high as 750 micrograms per deciliter, you know, 400, 300. But ravens never, they had, you know, you see the lead level increase, but it's never high like it is in humans, in eagles, and condors. And so the thought was, is maybe they have a biochemical pathway to get rid of the lead. And so we're working now with partners to see if we can figure out if that's true, what it is, and then could you use that to create a non-toxic chelation therapy for animals and people? Um, so that is on ongoing. Um, the labs, or the, the, the samples have been sent to the lab, hopefully to figure that out. Um, but in order to capture those ravens, we just drove around with a little net gun and did drive-by shootings in the middle of Jackson with some Cheetos for bait. 
Always cheetahs, yeah. <laughs> oh man, um, the uh, are there other other um, you know animals out there that that folks have found to have some sort of you know good resistance to lead other than other than ravens? Is there anything else that's uh, comparable, or is raven sort of the first you know the corvid sort of the first uh, first ones we found? Yeah, so, you know, just because of the circumstance I was in and the studies I was doing, we started with ravens. It was, you know, super obvious, opening, opening day of hunting season, they start getting lead, drops off. Publish this, everybody in Wyoming's like, we're, we're poisoning ravens with lead? Awesome, let's do some more of it. So we had to pivot a little bit and start working on bald eagles, and that's what got us into the eagle realm. Um, but along those same lines, we had the same questions of like, okay, well, these aren't the only animals feeding on gut piles. There's coyotes, there's wolves, there's bears. And so we were working, thankfully at the time, um, Game and Fish, Fish and Wildlife, Park Service, and other collaborators were working on those mammal species. And so we were able to get a graduate student um, to look at lead ingestion in the mammals. And the interesting thing is, is it does not seem to be an issue for the scavenging mammals here. Not anything like it is for the eagles and the ravens. Um, there was some lead in bears that seemed to be, the, 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 interior, the bears in the interior of Yellowstone seemed to have less lead, like there was some buffer, but nothing like you see in eagles. And so when people are like, we're poisoning bears and we're poisoning wolves with lead, that's just not true they're not ingesting it to the same uh, amount or have the same effects that, that it does on birds. I think there's interspecies variation and then within species variation too, of course, right? So, you know, ravens never, I don't think a raven has ever been found dead from lead poisoning. Um, you know, vultures also are less susceptible. Eagles are somewhat susceptible. And then the most are condors. And you'd think as an obligate scavenger that only feeds on dead things, condors would have evolved some level to deal with toxins, but definitely not lead. Um, and then within the species, you can have an eagle feed on gut piles for 30 years and be fine, and then have another one feed on five and die. So, you know, just like humans, if you smoke a pack a day for your life, you might be fine. And the next person might smoke, you know, for a couple of years and get lung cancer. So there's the, the variability between species and within species is still a huge unknown on why and such a, a, a ripe area for research for sure. What, um, what are some of the uh, you know, future avenues of research that you're looking to do with lead or, or you know, new or different species uh, to work with to help better understand the lead issue in the, in the GYE or the wider regions? Uh, I love that question. I love that question because I'm not sure I'm going to give you the answer you're anticipating. Um, I don't think we need any more research in this arena. I think we have the research we need and we have the data we need and what we need now is education and action to help solve this issue. There are so few environmental issues in our day and age with such a simple, easily solvable solution. And it's now just a matter of getting the message out, getting retailers on board to, to have those non-light options and getting our 
hunting and fishing organizations and, and you know influencers and leaders to help help us with that message of let's be awesome conservationists let's be awesome hunters let's be awesome anglers and let's use lead-free alternatives which are as good if not better to help ensure the future of our sporting but also the health of our wildlife in this arena you hear a lot of folks say there's no population level effect of lead and you know i can't disprove that statement i'm not going to be the one to say bald eagle populations are declining they're amazing the best recovery story we've had in wildlife conservation in north america is the bald eagle like we should be proud of that absolutely their populations are rising but that shouldn't be the crux of the conversation is that we're not making populations of bald eagles decline you know the talking point is still we eagles are still dying unnecessarily and um, understanding our impacts in our enjoyment of the world is impacting other animals. Let's just avoid it because we can and it's easy. Right. Yeah. And so question that popped into my head, you were talking about alternatives. What's what are some of the other alternatives for lead and what's kind of the most popular one that you've seen that people feel like performs as well as lead? The, the alternatives for big game hunting are is copper. Um, that's the, and almost every manufacturer has a, a line of lead-free ammunition now. And generally it's all copper with a, a polymer tip to help it expand. It expands just like lead ammunition does. Um, but it's, uh, it was actually designed for African big game hunting um, because of its superior performance and knockdown power. Um, it's not like steel shot for upland or for waterfowl that does have some significant performance differences. It's, you know, you got to sight your gun in for the, the ammo you're using and you should do that regardless of what ammo you've got. But once, once you got your scope sighted in, it's going to be just as good, if not better than the lead counterparts. And is it a little more expensive? Sure. It'll cost you another five bucks a box, but a box is 20 bullets. It's going to last you a year or two, and I think five bucks is is worth it, not only for the wildlife, but just to help promote, you know, the how we are perceived by non-hunters. We want to put our best foot forward, and that's worth an extra five bucks to me. Absolutely, yeah. Hunters that are shooting non-lead uh, should absolutely be applauded. So the takeaway point here is we do have some safe and effective alternatives to lead. And that's important since we know there's really no safe level of lead exposure in animals or humans. The more we study it, the more we are finding measurable effects at lower and lower levels of lead exposure. But in more severe cases, lead ingestion can cause a whole wide range of clinical signs across multiple body systems from weakness and neurologic dysfunction, GI problems, liver and kidney disease, or even just sudden death. Back in episode number four, Dr. Rob Adamski talked about how he diagnoses and treats lead poisoning in a wildlife rehab setting. So go back and check that out if you missed it and if you want to know more. We have a rehab at our organization as well, and we see birds come in with lead poisoning and like, you know, you never want to see our national symbol and such a regal bird like a bald eagle or a golden eagle come in and just can't move, can't you know, lift its head having seizures and, you know, pooping all over itself and 
um, you know, unable to fly. Like, I just think there's a lot of, you know, the, the, the high levels of lead poisoning from birds that have toxicosis is just heartbreaking when you see it. Um, and there's, there are, there are treatments, um, you know, chelation therapy, but that's not easy on the bird either. Um, you know, and so the, the treatment is horrible. You know, I guess, you know, it's kind of a, a form of chelate, uh, you know, chemotherapy in, in, in essence. Um, and, uh, I just think there's, you know, once you see that it also pulls, you know, at the heartstrings a little bit. Um, and, you know, there's amazing rehabs out there, but a lot of these birds, once they get ill, they find a place to hide and, and die. And so for every bird that comes into a rehab and gets released successfully, there's probably dozens that, that haven't been so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've had to watch a couple loons die sometimes, you know, in my hands from lead poisoning. Um, and, uh, it just seems like the absolute worst way to go. And you can just, you know, you can just see the pain and you can see just how just they're just in such rough shape. Like you said, like seizures are, can't move. They can't hold their wings. They can't hold their head. And um, yeah, just uh, a slow, slow, painful death. Yeah. it It's really interesting to me. It strikes me that you're in such a unique position because you're seeing this issue from sort of the full circle, you're doing field research on populations, you're, you know, working with, with hunters, and you're also, you know, through your organization, you're also involved with the rehab side. So yeah, that just struck me as you're a very unique <laughs> um, person in that respect. You're just very uniquely positioned because you're kind of seeing it from all these different angles where I think a lot of us kind of see it from one little narrow lens of this mm -hmm. bigger issue you kind of see all of it so that's really yeah i am beyond fortunate to be able to work at teton raptor center where i am because um, as you mentioned you know there are so few organizations that you know usually you're a research organization or you're a rehab organization or your education organization and you know we marry all three of those things um, really well and so I can go over to the rehab clinic and talk to our folks and just be like, you know, what's happening with these birds and, you know, be on the front lines and use their data to inform research projects, but then also use our research. You know, I'm a scientist. I'm not, I'm not an effective communicator like an educator is. And thankfully we have a team that can help us do that. And so, you know, scientists don't often get that opportunity to just like directly feed data into educational programs and um, we built an amazing team uh, to be able to do that and uh, yeah that holistic approach I think is is so I'm so fortunate to be in this um, situation and work with an amazing organization and amazing people in an amazing place um, on top of it. Yeah that's awesome so that's a perfect segue into working towards wrapping up here but one of the things we always like to do and use our podcast as a platform is how can our listeners give back and how can they support your work or the work of Teton Raptor Center? Um, is there anywhere that you'd like to point our listeners to check out, um, go where they can donate or, or help in any way? 
Yeah, you know, this this podcast we've been talking about lead and raptors. I would say please check out the information we put on uh, sportingleadfree.org. Um, we've got, you know, if you're a hunter and you're not so sure that I'm honest or true, go check it out. The data are there. Um, the information is there. Um, and, you know, help support our work um, in a couple of different ways. You can support it just by becoming a free member. And becoming a free member helps us because we're building this community and we want to showcase to our, our partners that there is support for voluntarily using lead-free um, options for fishing and hunting. So that's an easy step that you can take. You're going to get a free koozie. You're going to get some cool stickers. Um, and it doesn't cost you anything other than just going on the website and signing up as a free member. If you have the capacity and believe in what we're doing, uh, more than encourage you to make a monetary donation too to help support what we're, we've got going on. Um, we are introducing curriculum into the high schools using the data we've collected on eagles and ravens so the kids can see it for themselves. We're doing shooting demos with hunting organizations so that people can see the fragmentation firsthand. We are working with retailers like Walmart and others to increase availability and access um, to non-lighted options. And so, and we're also working towards a national outreach effort here. This is not just Wyoming. We are in, in talks of starting different state chapters already, even though we've just launched uh, you know, less than a year ago. And so there's a lot of great momentum. Please join us on that bandwagon. Um, you know, we've also at Teton Raptor Center, the fiscal sponsor for Sporting Lead Free, we do research, we do rehabilitation, we help those injured birds when they come in. It takes a lot of rats and mice to feed these birds. Um, and so if you want to help us on that endeavor, please do so and, and visit tetonraptorcenter.org. Um, and yeah, just thanks so much for the opportunity to, to talk about this and to share, uh, share our information uh, to the world. Yeah, absolutely. And listeners will have all of the links to Teton Raptor Center and Sporting Lead Free. Check it out. Give your support to, to Brian and, and to TRC and to Sporting Lead Free. Check them out on social media. They have great content coming out all the time. Um, yeah, and Brian, you know, it's always great to, to see you um, and chat with you. It's always learned so much and, and you have such great stories. Um, thank you so much for all your hard work. It's been it's been great having you on. Awesome, thanks. Let's uh, let's solve this together. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org/podcast.